Hello and welcome to the Visible Man podcast. I'm Jack Rollins, the producer of the show. Visible Man is an organization whose mission is to connect men in need, create a visible network of advocates, and train key men in existing social networks to provide a foundation of support. The topic of men's mental health has always been a touchy one. After all, that's one of the major reasons why Visible Man was created in the first place. But when you factor in race, things get even more complicated. During Black History Month, founder of Visible Man, Jeffrey Hoffman, sat down virtually with Dr. Marcus Burrell, who opened all of our eyes while they discussed the messy problem of race and mental health. Hey, Marcus, how are you? I'm not bad, man. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. So uh, we are with Dr. Marcus Burrell, owner of Bio Psychosocial Emotional and also a Visible Man Professional. And uh, really glad to have you with us today. Uh, thanks, man. Yeah, I am definitely glad to be here. Been, I've known Jeff, well, we've known each other, what, three months or so now? And, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, I... I think so. To, yeah, to, uh, I reached out to you as we were trying to expand Visible Man and just include a lot of different perspectives. Um, yeah. And your background, um, so much about you just really makes you a good fit for being here. And so we've been talking for a few months and uh, yeah. I'm just really happy, glad to have you as a friend, honestly. Yeah, yeah, honestly, that's, that's the most important thing to me too. You know, and you know, you were so kind to, Welcome me into the VM community, and I'm just glad to talk with you again, Jeff. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. Um, so Visible Man is about creating a place for guys to meet each other and for us to learn and challenge each other. And the topic of race is, and mental health is a messy problem. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I'm really anxious. I'm really excited to hear what you can share with us about that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So can you just kind of give a brief introduction of yourself and what, what got you into um, psychiatry and what your, what your business is about and uh, kind of just what got you started? Go from there, sure. Um, I'm actually from Rochester, New York. Um, I grew up in the inner city there. And uh, yeah, I guess on a personal note, why don't we start personal? So yeah, on a personal note, grew up in the inner city. I know my, my dad is comfortable with me talking about this, so I will. Um, my father, unfortunately, um, fell a victim to the uh, heroin epidemic at the time um, in the mid-80s. Um, he's so renowned. He, you know, I have a great relationship, which is why I feel comfortable saying that. But, you know, so I was raised by a single mom. She was a school administrator, principal at the time. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, my stepdad walked into my life great relationship with them too. But um, I say all that to say that coming up in Rochester, I eventually made the transition over to the suburbs. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do well in high school. But this also came um, at the cost of some serious personal mental health challenges that I had on my own. I guess all of that sort of sort of came to a head in high school with, you know, I told you what was going on with my father at that point in time. I also had a half brother who unfortunately um, took his own life while I was in high school. I'm able to talk about that now and we might be able to get back into that. But from there, that uh, little did I know is kind of what got me into psychiatry. I was actually picked up from high school um, and told at, at the University of Rochester's medical school, provided I do well enough and don't do anything stupid. You know, by the time I finish college, there would be a good chance for me to come back to um, University of Rochester Medical School, f you know, for my physician training. So I went on to the University of Pittsburgh for undergrad. I studied neuroscience, minored in chemistry there. And um, ultimately, while I'm back here at the uh, University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, that's actually where I sort of found out that I um you know, I, I was in love with psychiatry. I think on a personal level, 
which a lot of people you'll see who get into the mental health field. You know, I was also trying to figure out some stuff that, you know, was going on with me, but also, you know, what caused my brother to do what he did or, um, you know, the side of addiction that was going on in my family as well. So, yeah, I, I did a few research fellowships through the National Institutes of Mental Health on poverty. Um, there sort of moved on to understand race and poverty in the context of uh, psychiatry. And ultimately, upon graduating from medical school, um, sort of was faced with the choice of, you know, do I go the traditional psychiatry route or also do I, you know, I'd consider a psychiatric route in academia as well? I chose the latter. And I think that was the right choice to make ultimately because, you know, I had the opportunity to make a lot of good connections here in the community, um, really start understanding how, you know, what training I have had in psychiatry as well as just general medicine. But, you know, my research more importantly was applying to the city and how I could, you know, just do my part. My goal has always been to reach the widest base possible with what I've learned instead of, uh, you know, treating patients one-on-one. And at this point in time, yeah, we're here now. So that's that's my um, professional life. Um, also professionally, I'm currently um, enrolled getting my executive master's of business administration from uh, Rochester Institute of Technology right now. But yeah, that's why I'm professionally. And as uh, I imagine, we keep talking because I feel like I've yapped a lot already. Um, no, man, we're here to listen to you. So. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'll definitely tell you how the personal story weaves into that. And we can get into race from there. So. Yeah, okay. that's me in a nutshell. That's um, it, uh, it's uh, it's a, like a zip file of your life right there. You know, it's a good summary. And uh, you know, we publish this audio, and we're not on video. I'm a white guy, and <laughs> and in some ways, visible man. I like to. <laughs> I can make myself vulnerable so that other people don't have to, and they can follow my lead. So I may ask some dumb questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the honesty and the earnestness is where the magic lies, you know, um, there's ways to sound stupid, but you, you haven't done that yet. So. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that. So um, I, I'm not a mental health professional. And so I have a lot of respect for what you do because it, to me, it's, you give a lot of yourself in it. And I'm wondering, <laughs> broad question but where is the i don't know distinction but the bifurcation the split of there's mental health and then there's the race impacts the cultural yeah. impacts of mental health how does how do those look different how how is there a different perspective on that hmm, i never heard that phrase that way you know or is maybe it's the split is inappropriate yeah 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 i mean bifurcation i i like that word i always like two words but so where does race and mental health sort of bifurcate? I, I would actually challenge that, you know, I, I think bifurcation is maybe, I think the right, the term is correct, but I think at the moment is already bifurcated. And what we want to understand now is how do they reconverge? Um, you know, I, I could definitely say there's been, you know, historically speaking in terms of, you know, race and mental health, I think it can extend all the way back to just general health and uh, or speaking broadly in general health. You know, we could go all the way back to um, the Tuskegee experiments. I don't know how familiar you are with that. I am, but uh, it might give, it might be might serve well to give a brief summary. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I wish I could give you the exact time frame. That's my problem. Um, I can give that to you in a moment, but the Tuskegee experiments uh, more importantly is probably one of the more darker histories in time where the just hate saying it, but to be honest, uh, the U S government was sort of caught with a government project tracking the um, progression of syphilis um, and they wanted to understand it in uh, marginalized communities. And they did this in uh, Tuskegee, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just looking it up. (laughs) Yeah. Tuskegee, Alabama targeting individuals of very, very poor, uh, just, just removed from sharecroppers um, community. And the ethical issue was that they wanted to see how it would progress. Nowadays, that's not what you do. Um, and more importantly, as uh, treatments for um, syphilis came developed um, in interest of seeing how their experiment would progress instead of treating 
uh, individuals, they effectively let um, black individuals die. Incredibly unethical this day, but a lot of people professionally cite that as sort of, I, I would say maybe that was the first public bifurcation point. Okay. And Can I interject really quickly? Um, I looked it up and it's be, it was between 1932 and 1972. Yep. Oh, I'm, I'm actually glad you gave the start, <laughs> or start and finish date. So this is a 40 year project. Exactly. So needless to say, you know, we were tracking individuals for their entire lifespans and, um, the myriad, the host of ethical dilemmas that can occur over, you know, just a two, three year experiment, but we're talking 40 years and we were letting individuals die. I mean, I don't have a better way to put that, but um, what that sort of did historically is inject a little distrust in the uh, black population for the healthcare field in general. And that persists to this day. Um, a good book, I think, to refer to for people right now is Medical Apartheid, um, where we actually kind of talk about the entire history. Actually, two books, Medical Apartheid and um, The Mismeasure of Man, which speaks more specifically about how mental health uh, plays into um, this. Um, I can go all into the history, but maybe that's a part of it. But um, what I'm saying is, historically speaking, um, blacks have been treated, you know, unfairly as guinea pigs. And that's led a lasting history of distrust in the healthcare field. Um, And as individuals diverge, you know, we're marking this as a major bifurcation point. What happens is we tend to people are still getting sick. It's just that simple. So we tend to come up with our own reasoning and logic behind why these things happen and, you know, extend that one step further, our own treatments, in-house treatments, if you will, within the black community. Um, So, you know, now we have distrust um, coupled with, and I'm definitely, I'm not saying this to say that some of the in-house treatments that I would say black folks have had um, are outright wrong, but you take distrust and you couple it with where um, we are uh, trying to help ourselves even when we are still sick, you know, it, it can lead to a rough place, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we start there? There's the bifurcation. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciate you challenging my statement because I was thinking about that. The, <laughs> with the beginning of that, it was 1932. Let me look at that date again. Yeah. 1932. That oh, I'm I'm just sick thinking about how I'm just like, and now it makes sense to, to have the reunification or like the like the the joining again of um, mental health care treatment. And 1972 was not that long ago. I was not, I was born in 1974. So oh, right. yeah, I mean that's like our parents and grandparents, yep, the exactly. people that raised us, have understandably a very deep distrust. For not just the mental, just for the healthcare system. I mean, yeah. it's, I have, it's sickening. Yeah, well, I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, if we put that in context, generationally, these sentiments get passed down, right? I think it's also fair to mention that the way that the, uh, you know, I, I, I feel comfortable speaking for the black population, um, in this context, at least, um, I'm, I'm definitely my, black people are not a monolith. Let me start there. Um, differences definitely uh, exist between Africans living in America, African-Americans living in America, Caribbeans living in America. Um, so cultural differences definitely um, exist. But with that being said, perceptions about mental health, I would argue because of even our history of, you know, struggles with equality in America, we, there's a level of, I will say, stoicism, um, suffering in silence. I wouldn't say denial per se, um, because things definitely are hard. But, you know, not wanting to call depression what it may be, or I might even challenge even further that because of cultural differences and the way that we all 
express ourselves, you know, on an emotional level, myself or you, Jeff, are largely influenced by our upbringings and culture is very much included in that. And, um, you know, I can talk more about that, but, you know, our outward, excuse me, outward expressions of our emotion, our emotional and uh, mental health, the state of our mental health differ. Yeah. It's just that simple. And um, yeah, go ahead. It's, I think it's a good distinction that um, obviously black people are not a monolith and no, no skin color is. And it, the, the difference in culture. I mean, like someone that, that grew up in Africa. In fact, one of our visible men members is grew up in Africa and, and is here in, in the U S now. And, and he was recently at a meeting was last summer and there was a, he was visibly struck by the difference in being an African American versus an African in America. Right. And, and so even if I was a European <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that in America, um, it, your upbringing and your culture, your culture with a capital C with it, like that, you, the people that raised you really strongly influence you. And the stoicism is a good example. Like it, it sounds like that's a major thing. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly for black men, at least in African-American cultures and communities. Um, you know, I have close friends who are Africans and Caribbeans as well. And anyone, please feel free to challenge or get to me. I, I, always open for debate um debate sounds too confrontational open for um discourse discussion <laughs> yeah uh, i hate that term uh or anything like challenging like that but more importantly particularly in men um the idea of having to be strong i mean i think these are universal cultural beliefs you know men always have to be the strong person you know the provider in all of these traditional roles but the way that it, again it shows up in cultures is much different and you know i would argue to add on the um additional pressure of you know i'm just going to say it um having uh there there's an existential threat to our lives that comes um not just as a black person but as a black man and um that adds a whole nother layer of stress that, um, you know, I can, you know, I can add some parts of my story here if you'd like, but, um, you know, I, I, I recently gave a talk actually about that on Martin Luther King day for the, my brother's keeper initiative. And we talked about the idea of implicit bias or, you know, what are the ways without thinking that we bring our prejudices to the table you know, um, whether we all like it, we all have prejudices. Um, we can argue about the definition of racism some other time, mm. uh, but we are talking about prejudging individuals. And existentially speaking, I, I would just say, as we see in the news, black bodies are um, considered disposable. Yeah, sorry, that, that touched me for a minute. But yeah. two stories that I gave, um, and I won't give the full stories, but that I gave during the Martin Luther King Day talk I talked about was, you know, the very first time that I was um, detained by police. Um, and my wife and I, um, we were just married. Um, and I think I had just graduated from medical school, but simple oversight, we let our inspection sticker go. And um, we were literally on the way to get that fixed. You know, my wife was trailing in the car behind me. We were going to drop it off less than two miles away. She was in the car behind me and um, the police stopped me because the sticker was the wrong color, right? What ensued was, you know, him running my plates, um, calling additional police, um, asking that I step out of the car, I can't remember if I consented to a search or not, but I know my stuff was searched. I'm, I'm not going to fabricate things there. I very much could have consented to the search. Uh, yeah, in fact, I did because I knew I had nothing to hide, quite frankly. But, you know, he asked me to step out the car and I, I asked why. And um, he's like, you know, it's it's OK. I'm like, I'm, I'm nervous to step out the car. And he's like, it's okay. The very moment I put my foot on the ground, um, I was immediately turned around, pushed against the car and handcuffed in front of my wife. And um, I never really got a good explanation why, but I can tell you that the reason I got out of the situation was while I was sitting in the back of his cop car after about 20 minutes, um, I explained after he asked what I do for a living, I'm I'm a doctor. 
And there's a unspoken code that police sort of look out for doctors because it could be one day that they wind up on your gurney. Well, I'm nervous about saying that, but um, in between that and, um, you know, I'll fast forward through the details, but I was ultimately released and he's like, you're one of the good ones. Oh, right. I, I have, I'm affected by what you're telling me. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And simply put, I, I mean, I was shaking by the time I was out of it. And what was worse was how he, you know, treated my wife who tried to look out for me and ask why he was being detained. And, you know, he just laid into my wife for simply asking and forced her to leave the scene. Fortunately, my wife, you know, just pulled up, I don't know, a hundred yards and continued to watch to make sure nothing happened. But yeah. Dude, um, stoicism is a freaking understatement like that, like existential threat. I have tears to my eyes. Literally. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm ashamed at that kind of, Right. Thing happening. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. Oh, I appreciate that. But yeah, you know, we, we wrap that into the concept of mental health. You know, there, there's a term out there coined called um, racial battle fatigue in which they've been able to determine, for example, that, you know, African-Americans um, who've experienced significant amounts of exposure to this existential threat through overt or covert microaggressions, displays of racism, displays similar, you know, startle responses and um, stress levels um, that individuals exposed to combat have, you know, I'll I'll say the term racial battle fatigue, but yeah, you know, we put all that together and, you know, um, there's a systemic threat, um, an institutionalized threat to um, African-Americans physical well-being that, you know, combined with the historical, you know, we'll say distrust, you know, I don't think you need letters behind your name to um, understand how, you know, that can contribute or I won't say contribute, um, deteriorate or erode one's mental health, you know, in an insidious fashion over time, or if in the sight of a tragic event immediately. I, I, uh, holy crap. (laughs) I'm like, I'm, I, I, I'm so, I don't, I, I appreciate you so much sharing all this because I'm, you can almost see the, uh, (laughs) you can see like coming across my face of like, you know, it, it, it piled a lot on so i, I no i do it's not, it's 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 helping it's helping and that's why we're here um you know i i have two kids and i talk about you know i try to raise them well and i think about if you're in a stressful situation like a car accident like there's sort of a an immediacy like an existential threat like you said it's not the same i'm not making the comparison but if you're afraid you're gonna die if there you're you existential um, threats don't have to be racialized yeah Yeah. you worry about your mental you don't even worry about your mental health you revert into your amygdala of like your lizard brain about your um your instinctive response and and having known people and caring about people with ptsd um that jerk the the, uh instinct response to um react in a situation um no doubt, man, yeah. like that. And, and so there's like, okay, so now this is great. I don't know if it's the wrong word, but like, this is like really helping me understand yeah. that there is, I mean, mental health. Okay. Let's step back to your challenging of my statement about bifurcation, which I'm so glad you did because now I'm like, oh, okay. So, it's great. so yeah. mental health is really just now. And I feel like taking, uh, getting a lot more visibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, we're trying to destigmatize it through this discussion, you know? Um, But if you don't, it it seems like mental health is a luxury to think about if you have an existential threat. Uh, Does, does, is that right? In the absence of an existential threat or is it, go ahead. Uh, No, it's okay. Um, Zoom makes it hard too. So (laughs) Um, just the audio Um, that, if you're worried, like when you got pulled over and you got detained, 
that is a threat to your physical well-being that um, you got to take care of that first. You got to think about and address, you know, first. And so mental health, you know, uh, if you're already kind of in a battlefield type of mentality, you're not going to be thinking about, you know, how do I feel right now? You're kind of in survival mode. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. So like, how does the mental, how, how have you seen the mental health discussion evolve since you got into it? You know, I, I, uh, it's, it's evolved and starts and stops. I think that's the best way to put it. And it's evolved in certain pockets while remain stagnant in others. I think that's my best. Fit. Currently, some of the work that I'm interested in and I'm um, in running for a grant right now, we'll see how that turns out. But, you know, study, I guess, the idea of implicit bias on um, mental health outcomes and just I haven't been on both sides as a physician and, you know, an individual with my own mental health challenges as well, understanding how you know, the unique pressures of necessarily being a physician are, are real. You know, you're, you're under a time crunch, particularly in psychiatry. Psychiatrists do not, you know, there's a massive shortage. You know, the supply and demand is ridiculously out of balance. Let's just put it that way. You know, and then we'll throw in race into that. Um, and individuals, you know, um, preconceived notions about how individuals are going to respond to mental health problems. So when you say individuals, you mean patients and physicians? Yeah, patients and the decisions that are made about them, quite frankly. And here's a good example. So, yes, in that study in which I'm trying to conduct at the moment is understanding. I would like to, you know, for example, collect patient stories about what have been the ways in which they felt grossly misclassified. Um, the classic example of this is with, you know, um, for example, depression um, and ADHD, which um, African-American boys are wildly mis- uh, overdiagnosed for, in my opinion. And there is evidence to support this. But along those lines, what I tend to understand and have come to believe is that the ways that we going back to the idea of stoicism, the ways in which, you know, African-Americans particularly may express, and I will call it mental, we'll just call it distress. The term I've coined is the language of distress. Um, I I recently actually, as of Monday, had a paper um, published about these topics, but um, in the idea of the language of distress is that the cultural filter again. And, a lot of what individuals, little black boys who've been identified as having ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder, or just being called angry, I would argue, is that it's really depression. Um, And the way that we express ourselves, again, are very different. So, you know, where is the field? Going back to your question, there's individuals who understand that and there's individuals who do not. And then there's also the individuals, and I'm talking about providers here, who would like to understand and just don't know, or they would like to understand, but they don't have the luxury of the time Hmm. to learn about it. And there's also the, frankly, the implicit bias of even having the curiosity to understand something that they may not even know exists. That's a, that's an excellent point. You know, you, you can't treat what's not put in front of you. You know, you, I, there's a, some weird maxim I'm trying to quote from business school. I know I'm, (laughs) but more of the story, you know, yeah, you can't fix what you can't measure. Right. And if you, you don't have the time to measure, you know, you don't really see the urgency to do these things. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to push it one step further. It can be damn inconvenient to put some hard numbers in front of your face when you're trying to do your best you can to keep your head above water and inconvenient in the sense like, yeah, I got a job to do, but I'm going to go there and even say it's uncomfortable to talk about race from the patient or the provider perspective. And that's where we are, I think. Um, it, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm just going to echo what you said. It's uncomfortable. I mean, I'm, 
I, uh, I live in the suburbs. I have, I, I, um, I actively encourage my kids and we expose them to everything, but as everything that we can, but we still have, it's still an uncomfortable topic right. um, to, to talk about. Yeah. So, so you had mentioned stoicism before and yeah, particularly yeah. for black men. Mm-hmm. Can you comment on that, on what the unique challenges are? Yeah. Um, and I can give another story to sort of highlight that. Sure. Um, the folks in VM, and I should preface this by saying my, I love my stepfather very much. I, I'm going to preface that um, because I'm going to talk about the interaction we had in a moment. But as folks in VM know, back in 2018, um, my wife and I lost our son about an hour after he was born. Easily the most difficult period of my life and experience of my life. And I'm going to tell this story because I want to highlight, you know, under what such extreme distress, the need to remain stoic um, can exist. So my wife and I clearly are devastated, um, circulating between just utter disbelief, numbness, breaking down, what have you, and wash, rinse, repeat with those emotions. Uh, Sorry. Along those lines, um, you know, my aunt, my uncle come up to the hospital and, uh, you know, uh, I go out to greet my aunt who's just... I had, she was taking it very, very hard. And, you know, it, it came about me to be comforting to my aunt, despite how I was feeling, you know, I love my aunt. So I wanted to do that in the midst of saying that, I don't know if I was just talking about my son, James, we call him Jamie, hmm. um, you know, trying to say, you know, Jamie's at peace or something. I, I, I lost it, lost it, lost it. My knees gave out from underneath me and I buckled and I was on my way to falling to the floor and my stepdad caught me, caught me, picked me up by my arms and he hugged me, you know, to his credit. It's not like he was shaking me like stop, but he's like, you cannot cry. You cannot cry. Do not cry. You need to be strong for your wife right now. Whatever you do, do not cry. Get it together get it together. He wasn't yelling at me. Like I said, this was very loving, but you know, my dad is, I mean, my dad's old school, old school. And I should probably in all fairness, um, preface this by saying he was a green beret, um, in Vietnam. (laughs) Um, So, you know, he's, he's honorable. Yeah. Honorable, but a special type of badass. And it takes a certain type of, uh, mindset to do the things that he did in order to survive in that world you have to have a certain level of separation and compartmentalization of your emotions but all of that is to say couple with that's exactly what my dad expected of me as a man my wife needs me right now and this wasn't my time to be sad it's um well, I think that encapsulates so much of what, uh, I, you know, the, the challenges as a guy that men have, um, that we are often called upon to support others in, in a way that, you know, puts puts us behind them. But also, I mean, culturally, like you talked about, that's, I mean, that is, that's perfect example. Yeah. And, you know, we can bring the race into that. You know, I, I give that story just to highlight under which extreme examples that stoicism is brought in but you know even racially you know the general thought you know it wasn't until recently the idea of for example black men you know regularly living a middle class or you know upper middle class life um it's relatively new very uncomfortable discussions to this day i have with my parents who didn't understand why one of my parents who didn't understand why i spent so much damn time in school but um the truth of the matter is from the eyes of black men who've historically been the provider with the existential target on their backs, mouths need to be fed. You don't have the damn time to feel sorry for yourself, whether you like it or not. 
Um, there's individuals out there in the world who wish you harm because of the color of your skin and your beliefs. And at the end of the day, despite that, the bills are still going to be due. So push it, get it together. And, you know, there's more acceptable ways to cope, you know, and I, I say this with the preface that I'm not labeling anyone in the black African-American, African Caribbean community as an alcoholic, but there are more or, you know, victims to addiction, just like any other population. I would never say that. But, you know, for example, overt displays of masculinity, whether it be, you know, um, being seductive to women, you know, or being able to hold your liquor or, you know, I think these are also more broadly generalizable, but, you know, um, being a physically tough guy who does not cry are deeply ingrained in uh, our culture. And, you know, I personally, I'm sober, but I think that it would have been far more acceptable had I decided to drink my face in than cry over my son. God, I'll be better. I, it's just, it's so moving to hear you talk about this and your vulnerability is, I, I appreciate it so much. Um, I feel very, it just as listening to it, I feel very impacted. So I'm so grateful for you sharing this. I, um, this. I could, we're, oh, I could talk to you for, we're, we're, <laughs> we're like, horrible. <laughs> I, no, no, it's, um, we can, I'd love to uh, keep going. Um, yeah. as we've been talking, we have, um, on the visible man server guys have been listening and we have, uh, some questions. So yeah. if it's okay with you, I, I want to transition to questions and answers. Yep. Cool. What's up everyone. Okay, Marcus, could you speak to the dilemma in providing mental health treatment for people of color, which focuses only on reduction of symptoms without acknowledging and addressing the sources of trauma, intergenerational, and systemic racism, which mm. is baked into the system? Oh, boy. This personally is where I'm trying to drill at in my professional life, drill into. I would say that going back to the idea of starting and stopping, there are individuals in the healthcare field, mental healthcare field, you know, fortunately, um, organizations like the Black Physicians Network here in Rochester, you know, we've coalesced enough to gather a voice to say, hey, what we, we're doing is matters. But um, I don't think the field as a whole is ready to accept these things. I can tell you that uh, organization I'm part of the Black Healers Network. Um, we are trying to make a you know public decree that racism is a mental health dis um, a, a threat to mental health and a mental health disorder in and of itself. With that being said, um, the intergenerational part. I'm going to put it this way in the context of an acute patient setting where they're going into like psych ED, the psychiatric emergency department, you have to do intakes. You get seen by nurses, your vitals taken after you go through a battery of people where, you know, quite frankly, you might feel ignored for a long, long time. It takes forever to go through that before you finally see a doctor, you know, you might eventually get your, um, you know, you get your initial intake interview, you know, 15 minutes, and then you might get your one hour interview as well to really get a baseline of what's going on. And in your one hour interview, I can assure you that the intergenerational trauma or the history of how race has impacted your mental health will not come up. Um, and I'm not saying that to say that that's a failure on the providers. I am just saying that it's a product of, I think, honestly, the time constraints trying to figure out from a purely diagnostic standpoint, what's going on. You know, are we looking at depression as the individual under influence, you know, is psychosis, you know, from, you know, schizophrenia, something like that. And because race really hasn't been baked into the lexicon of the mental health field yet, 
let alone psychiatry in and of itself, it's not going to show up in the interview. What I would suggest and recommend perhaps is if you are tied into a long-term therapist, making that a point to advocate for yourself that, hey, I am experiencing a racialized component of trauma or race um, and discrimination is factoring into my mental, emotional distress. If the healthcare field is yet to use in its very nascent stages to address it, if they are not ready to address it, that does not mean that you ought not to address it yourselves. I, I would advocate that you advocate on your behalf and that's not to pass the buck onto you by any means, but your personal experience has every right to be told. And there are therapists out there um, who are more sensitive um, to this. Um, and, you know, if, if need be, you know, finding a new therapist who's aware of these issues might be recommended as well. Again, the demand or the supply is low based on demand, but that's where I would stand on this. That's uh, very thorough. Thank you. And long. I'm long one. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's good. Um, okay. Next question. How can we raise awareness for the issue of police oppression against black people? I mean, the protests are out there. I would never not say join a protest or don't join a protest. Uh, that was a whole bunch of double negatives. Protests help. Let me put it that way. If need be, you know, I'm connected to individuals who organize these protests. Some of my professional work, um, you know, developing technologies that can support that. You know, if anyone's open to discussions about these things, I'm, I'm, I'm open to that as well. Um, the work is starting to be done. Um, I think, though, on a grassroots level, I would say the first thing is as a person, a person who is not of color, I think the very first thing is starting from a stage of humility, admitting what you don't know. That's simple. I don't know, but I care. Please teach me. Just that simple, quite frankly, um, because I think one of the biggest traps that individuals who, you know, non-POC folks, people of color is, can get into is once they learn a little, you know, acting like they know a lot um, and speaking on the behalf of black folks. I just made a face. I don't know. People on the podcast can't see that, but I just winced. I like, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, just like, you know, I, I'm not a member of the LGBT community, but I can proudly say that I'm an ally. I'm not going to speak on behalf of LGBTQIA plus individuals. Um, it's just that simple. If they ask me to speak on their behalf about a medical subject or something, of course. Um, but I even I wouldn't do that without one of them in the room. I think if knowing when you do know something and you don't know something is important. Um, I am a firm believer. This is the first thing I ever learned in medical school, and I think this applies to life, is when you don't know something and you don't admit it, that's when people get killed. Saying you don't know something can save lives um, because it offers the opportunity to point people to resources and individuals who may know more than you. It's 100% great to advocate and believe. I, I think getting, for whoever asked, getting you involved with the networks of folks that I know who are interested in these issues and getting you connected to them, I think is also the right first move. But no matter how far along in your journey for advocating you go, always knowing there's more to know and, you know, speaking on the behalf of people is probably a big no-no unless someone else is in the room or you've been given the green light. I wish I had a more elegant way to say that. No, that's okay. I think it makes sense having that humility and recognizing, admit, yeah. admitting, just not even admitting, but just yeah. recognizing that you don't know. Yeah. And, to, and but I care. And I'd like and to it's know. always okay to check someone who's being an ass. I'm just going to put that out. <laughs> you know, 
black guys, POC folks, white folks, check someone. I, I, I wish I had a more elegant way to say that. But if you see something going on and you're not okay with it, say you're not okay. I think actually that's even more basic. Publicly saying it's not okay. And I would take it one step further. I do this. Asking the person, why do you think this is okay? <laughs> Just leave it there. And that it would be powerful. Yeah. Put it if, I'm in a, in lap. if I'm in a situation and somebody says that I would be. Yeah. No. This isn't cool. Why do you think this is cool? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next question goes back to when you talked about stoicism. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like it starts early in the schools. Hmm. disciplining young African-American boys oh boy. and yeah. not seeing the pain that mm-hmm. they're experiencing. Would you, would you tend uh, it was it's kind of a yeah. assertion, but what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. Um, I can, again, I, I can give you the resources later because I can't directly give the source by title right off the name, but there's a study that speaks directly to this issue that, you know, the dispro- it speaks about the disproportionate levels in which little brown boys and girls are disciplined. Um, just recently here in Rochester, right? Rochester's in the headlines for um, putting a poor little nine-year-old girl who's in a mental health crisis in the back of a, a cop car, handcuffed and maced. I, I have no words. I have plenty of words, but I have no words to uh, describe how I'm feeling about that. But I think the important point getting to whomever asked this question is if you, if you listen to the audio or read one of the reports, what one of the officers, I believe, said was, you're acting like a child right now. Um, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't know if that's the direct quote, but you're at. And her little response cutting through with such clarity, despite the amount of distress and oppression she was under was, I am a child. The study I'm referring to is talking about how in classrooms, it's been demonstrated that teachers, I believe it's at the elementary, we'll we'll just say at the secondary school level, um, I can say confidently there, but tend to view little black boys and black girls as adults, they don't see them as kids. They view them as adults and therefore it's okay to treat them thusly. Mind you, any of these things that I'm putting out, like I said, I will provide resources to back these things up. But what that person is referring to is a very real phenomenon. It's just that simple. They are spot on with that. I, <laughs> I'm also speechless because just uh, it, it yeah, I'm gonna. I have to like pull myself together to, <laughs> to uh, because what what all the all the things that you're sharing are just so impactful uh, for me, and I hope everybody listening. Um, I could talk to you for hours, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I and I I would love to have you back. Yeah, um, you're in the server. You're in the Visible yeah. Man server. No. Um, anybody listening would welcome you to join. Uh, Dr. Burrell is in there. Is a bunch of other guys. Uh, so I have one last question. Yeah, yeah. yeah before you go, how can we encourage men to express their feelings? Ooh, and that's why we are all in the server. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I'm like, I got two hats on. I got my personal hat and my professional hat on right now, but I think the wisdom comes from learning to listen to the contrarian voices out there. Right. Um, those individuals, you know, we all sort of go along with the crowd, but to be brave enough, it's just that simple. It's not to simplify here, but it's as simple and as elegant as leading by example. It's going to be scary. At times you're going to feel alone. At times you're going to feel like you're doing the wrong thing, but being the individual who is comfortable with being uncomfortable and expressing it is where the magic lies. 
I am a firm believer, you know, mindfulness. I, I push mindfulness every chance I get. I've been a meditator for something like five years now. On and off, I've probably meditated three and a half of those five and, you know, spotty in the other two, <laughs> one and a half years. But I, the message that I've always gotten is learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because if you want to ask, you know, that's what masculinity sort of means to me. Those of us out there who puff up our chests and, you know, want to punch trees or, I don't know, tear car doors off of hinges, whatever absurd image you want to think of, of what's being tough. It's being comfortable with being uncomfortable and not being afraid to show it and leading by example and accepting that it's, it's going to suck along the way, but you're going to be able to bring so many more people along with you and affect so many people's lives along the way by being that emotionally honest and open person that will be worth it. That's well said. That's well said. I have really enjoyed this. Um, I want to mention uh, anybody listening, you can talk to Dr. Burrell in the visible man server and your username is black doc underscore on Mars. Yep. And uh, this is, you're the owner of bio. So psychosocial, emotional. Yes. See, behavioral and educational solutions yep um i'll put my contact up in the vm server and uh you know my linkedin and all that we can attach later so yeah cool marcus i have enjoyed this i've i've grown and learned and i hope everybody listening has to i really appreciate your time and your and your vulnerability thank you thanks thanks Thank you for listening to the Visible Man podcast. If you are interested in taking part in the next live discussion or just want to hang around a great group of guys who not only listen and understand, but actively lift one another up, shoot Jeff a DM on Instagram at visibleman underscore org or go to the website visibleman.org. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It helps other people find us. For Visible Man, this is Jack Rollins, reminding you that being vulnerable is the ultimate demonstration of strength. Cheers.